This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Now that Thanksgiving is upon us, you've likely firmed up your plans to celebrate in this very unusual year. We've been advised to have Thanksgiving dinner only with those in our household to reduce the spread of COVID-19. But at the beginning of this past week, there was a lot of confusion around the rule, primarily because of Premier Doug Ford's declaration he would be having Thanksgiving with no more than 10 people. He later clarified that dinner at his home would be only for those who live in his house, and he apologized for his mixed messages. On Wednesday, Libby Snymer gathered a panel of experts to talk about the messaging around Thanksgiving and what went wrong. She was joined by epidemiologist Dr. Ray Dianandon at the University of Ottawa, Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations, and Robin Sears, NDP strategist and principal at Ernst Cliff Strategy Group. The analogy is chess in a way. It's very easy to learn the moves on a chessboard. It's very hard to get good at it. And communication strategy is not unlike that. I mean, there are, there are three absolute must-dos, which most governments have consistently screwed up. Be simple. Make the messaging clear and simple. Make it consistent over time and consistent with what you said before, and we'll say tomorrow, and repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Those three principles would have kept all the governments who are stepping on each other's toes out of trouble to begin with. One leader who I think has done, in everybody's estimation, a tremendous job in leading his people through this period is Andrew Cuomo. He's in charge. He's the governor. He obeys the communications rules. But, you know, in Ontario, you've got the mayor, the premier, the ministers, the public health officers at several levels, and Ottawa. There is no way out of that alphabet soup you're going to get simple, consistent messaging. So it's kind of baked into the way in which Canada is run as a federal state, I suppose. But more importantly, that there was nobody internally in the premier's office, the prime minister's office, the mayor's office who said, okay, folks, let's make sure we're all reading from the same page. And if we have to change anything, we'll notify each other in advance and agree on it. Okay? Bob, what do you, what do you make of all that? Yeah, it's been very confusing, and there's just there's too many. Uh, I completely agree with Robin on this. There are way too many cooks in the kitchen here. And and the other thing is, there was a time in this pandemic several months ago where people were focused on it, and you know, and I I, I wanted to hear from the prime minister and the premier and from the mayor, and I wanted to see that progress was being made and things were being done because it was scary off the top. It's not anymore seven months later. We do not need to hear from them every single day. They should be reducing the amount of uh, press conference they do by 70 or 80 percent and do like a really good update once, maybe twice a week maximum. But, you know, it looks more about, you know, politicians trying to get their mug on TV than it is about really communicating effective messages with people. So there's two... There's too much 
there's too much uh, communication and it's really unfocused and all over the map. Uh, so there's lots of room for improvement here. With respect, it's not just politicians getting their mug on. There are a lot of medical officers getting their mug on. And I would think that's part of the problem too, Dr. Dionandon. Yeah, if you look at which jurisdictions have done this well, I can think of, as mentioned, New York, uh, BC, Germany, even Sweden, New Zealand, all the places where the communication has been fairly good. And that's because one person is one voice that does most of the talking. And that voice is usually the public health leader of that jurisdiction. Here we have multiple faces and voices saying conflicting things, having multiple press conferences, often one after each other, saying different things. So I don't blame the population for being really confused. Bob, what would you hope to see or advise him going forward? I would hope all uh, three levels of government take a look at their communications, listen to comments that are being made by people. Uh, I would reduce uh, the amount of communications they're doing. And I would also go back to the three you know, points that, uh, that Robin uh, raised, you know, just about clarity, um, you know, about, about being clean and simple, about being uh, consistent um, and and transparent. So you know, if if governments went back, took a good look at their operations, cleaned it up, reduced the amount of uh, time that they're speaking to people, I think we'd see some improvement. Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. Robin Sears, NDP strategist and principal at Ernstcliff Strategy Group. And epidemiologist Dr. Ray Dianandon at the University of Ottawa. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We learned this past week from the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association that the Ford PCs at Queen's Park were warned in late January about the devastation that could be caused by the virus in nursing homes. Donna Duncan told the Independent Commission into the long-term care crisis the government was asked at that time to free up inspectors to point out shortcomings that the highly contagious virus could exploit in nursing homes, many of them older with rooms holding three or four residents that fueled the spread. But an action plan by the Tories did not come until mid-April, when at least 144 residents had already died in 100 outbreaks of COVID-19. Are we headed to a dreadful repeat of the spring now that we're into a second wave of the virus? On Wednesday, Libby asked that question of Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and lawyer Jane Medes at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. I think that there is absolutely, you know, people who, you know, could be held accountable here for not providing care. For example, Orchard Villa, you know, why, you know, why weren't things uh, corrected earlier? Why wasn't there help provided? Um, We know, you know, anecdotally about, you know, refusals. We know about hospitals not wanting patients there. Um, Lots of things. uh, Why wasn't the government in there? fixing up that home, which was known to be a problem prior uh, to uh, COVID even existing. We knew that that home had issues. Why weren't things being done beforehand? And absolutely, people didn't do their jobs. And and to add to that, uh, Libby, uh, in Australia, if we know, as Jane says, that a home has a problem and they know second time, third time, they close them. 
here they can continue to be open forever and ever and ever. Orchard Villa ought to have been closed the moment that the army entered that home, and we still don't know, because it has not been fully disclosed, what they actually found there, if they found even people that had passed away, and I wouldn't be surprised, I would be even more devastated, but not entirely surprised, given what I know that happened there. Second, government was a decision, because I approached them directly, Dr. Williams, and all the way to the Minister Fullerton and the Premier, we begged, and Livia was in your show at the time, we begged for PPE to go first to nursing homes. It never happened. Take now the flu shot, Livia. Flu shots are already being given in hospitals, but not yet in nursing homes. How do you explain that when we know that residents in nursing homes are the most vulnerable of all? They're being given in pharmacies. I stopped by uh, my yes, local but pharmacy. In nursing homes, they're still not being given, yeah. maybe next week. Yep. Yeah, and, and there's still a problem with PPE in, in long-term care. I'm stopping. Um, especially, you know, N95, N95, um, where homes are asking, begging the ministry, the government to release them because they're the only place they can get them. And yet, again, it's a focus on the hospitals and long-term care homes, yes. despite yes. the and death tolls. In, in his story, with all due respect, he speaks about the advocates that are asking for hours of care. I wish he would have the courtesy of mentioning basic care guarantee that has been asked already for eight years, and government knows, Minister Fullerton knows, and yet they are delivering nothing. Well, they are delivering basically six months of top-up for PSWs with the bonus, which is now infuriating, quite frankly, the, the um, registered practical nurses because they're at the same pay. So we need to deal with the whole situation of staffing. You cannot deal with one category that is needed and not deal with the others because you create tensions that only add to the tension instead of helping. What can the government do in the next, like yesterday, uh, so that we don't have another disaster on our hands. If you don't start to stop the spread, it will spill over and certainly will spill over to all the vulnerable populations, shelters, nursing homes. We will have a disaster again in our hands and we are headed towards that. The government has to have a plan. They have to make sure that they are not treating long-term care homes as a second-class citizen um, um, under hospitals. Um, I think that is a huge thing. They also have to rethink how we're doing visitors and short absences. We cannot continue to detain people um, or restrict visitors because I think that that is killing people as much as the COVID. People are, you know, dying because of their isolation. Lawyer Jane Medes at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly and Dr. Doris Greenspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. It was announced by the Trudeau Liberals this past week. They intend to follow through on a promise to ban single-use plastics by the end of next year. But some critics are questioning why announce this now when we're in the midst of a pandemic that's seen our single-use plastic consumption increase by a whopping 250 to 300 percent as we dispose of items like PPE and avoid using reusable bags and containers over fears of being exposed to the virus. The Environment Minister says the latest list includes only items that can be easily replaced with more eco-friendly alternatives. But there's also the question of increased cost. 
especially for restaurant owners hard hit and trying to survive, mostly on takeout. Joining Libby Snymer to discuss the issue, Michelle Gentner, co-owner of Unboxed Market, and Daniel Hornweg, associate professor in the Faculty of Energy Systems and Nuclear Science at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. It's a thing that that is is trying to send a message. Um, I think it's a bit more uh, presentational and trying to respond to what government and what people are, are are demanding and are very concerned. I think the issue with plastic is is more of an issue of, of it um, degrading and being in the wa- in, in waterways and that sort of thing. There's lots of studies that are coming out about how much plastic is actually consumed by us in, in, in microparticles. Um, banning is always a challenge. I, I was a uh, recycling coordinator for the city of Guelph way back in 1987. And the um, Air Canada switched from the little glass uh, booze bottles on the planes to plastic. And we sent them a note saying, hey, that's a terrible idea because uh, uh, plastic isn't recyclable. And they they sent back a very nice note uh, a few months later to me. This was my first council resolution ever. And they said, "Um, but by the way, we've done the studies and the fuel that we'll save because plastic is so much lighter than glass. is is very significant um, in the greenhouse benefits for that. So plastic is, it's the shade of gray that that uh, it has a tremendous number of, of benefits. It also has a tremendous number of downsides. And so banning a few things here and there uh, sends a message that people are concerned about it, but how much help it does overall is always a bit of a question. Okay, let's bring in Michelle uh, Gentner from the Unboxed Market. And uh, Michelle, you've already gotten rid of, of things like that, correct? As much as possible, yeah. During the pandemic, didn't that hurt you when people were actually looking for those things? They wanted more packaging, wanted assurances that other people weren't touching or anything like that? No, and part of the reason is because we already hold our store to an incredibly high standard of cleaning and sanitizing just because of the way that our store um, exists. So we need to constantly be aware of high touch points and, and sanitizing and cleaning those things long before the pandemic. So we definitely had to step up those efforts and we um, have changed some some ways that people interact in our store with our products. So we took away um, sampling items. We took away um, the scoops being in the bin, so there are clean and dirty scoop bin places now, so that things are not touched by multiple hands. But uh, for example, if you take a traditional grocery store and you walk down a cereal aisle, and it's boxes and boxes and boxes of cereal, there's a very good chance that many people have touched that box of cereal and put it back and gone with a different box of cereal, and there is a equally good chance that nobody has followed behind and sanitized every one of those boxes because that's a ridiculous um, labor-intensive exercise that really would have no uh, long-term benefit because two seconds later, someone else would again touch the box of cereal. Whereas here, since our cereal is in bins, it requires us simply sanitizing a handle or a, or a turn nozzle, which is much easier to maintain um, and, a, and a cleaner surface in general, for our customers shopping. So we didn't really see um, that much of an impact, also because the people who shop in our store are used to having those systems already in place. Uh, Daniel Hornweg, what would you like to leave us with on this? By us trying to avoid as much plastic as possible, it sends a very strong message. 
but I think it's important to keep in mind that that there are some benefits for, or a lot of benefits from plastic, and it's not easy. Um, but I think the government it, it takes it, but the government knowing that we're all trying to to work, uh, I mean, a li- as much as possible cooperatively makes a huge difference. And Michelle. Uh, I think that, uh, aside from the points that we've already said, a big factor that I'd like to see coming down from the government right now, if they are going to push this through, is working with municipalities to develop uh, facilities that can actually compost the compostable products that they're now pushing as an alternative. Presently, those do not exist in the vast majority of North America, and we need more of that if the alternative is to then compost compostable products. Michelle Gantner, co-owner of Unboxed Market, and Daniel Hornweg, associate professor at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We're being told it's more important than ever to get a flu shot this year and to do so as soon as possible. And the reason for this, if you get sick, it could be hard to tell if you have COVID-19 or influenza. And there is some scientific evidence that a flu shot could help you fight off COVID-19. The flu shot is already available at some pharmacies and doctor's offices earlier than it's usually offered. And this year, pharmacists will be able to administer the high-dose vaccine for people over 65, in addition to the regular flu vaccine, news that we broke on Fight Back a few weeks ago. On Thursday, Libby was joined by Rexall pharmacist Joanna Wild to talk about this year's flu shot. We are receiving some distribution from the manufacturer now. However, the official start date of the vaccination period this year is on October 19th. So we expect to continue having trickles in of supply over that time frame. Okay. And what are you telling people to do? So currently, it's kind of a you can call around, you can check with your pharmacy at Rexall. We had a a reminder alert sent out when the pharmacy did receive it. But because we are receiving smaller supplies a little bit at a time, it's difficult to tell what the demand will be. Um, We do have an appointment-based platform this year. If you hop onto Rexall.ca, you can make an appointment starting October 26th. The reason that we're waiting until October 26th is because that's when we can replenish our own stock and we can order freely and be pretty certain that we're going to have flu vaccine in stock for our patients. And I think that's going to be very similar across the board. Joanna, we were saying yesterday there's been a little bit of evidence that getting your flu shot would actually help uh, in dealing with the pandemic. Can you explain that, please? Absolutely. And I think it's it's not necessarily uh, meant to be taken as the flu shot will protect you from the coronavirus because the flu shot is aimed at you know, what we can expect to see in terms of the influenza virus this year. But what we can do um, is, is lessen the load on the, on the healthcare system. So this year they're calling it a twindemic. The reason for that is not only will we likely see, you know, the hospitalizations from COVID um, in some level as we have been, but, you know, there's an added risk of will we see hospitalizations from the flu as well? And what will that look like? And how much can our healthcare system sort of maintain. Last year, um, the 2019-2020 season, we saw 12,200 hospitalization and about 3,500 deaths related to the flu. So, you know, that is a risk. I'm not sure, Libby, did you read about what happened in Australia in the Southern Hemisphere? It was really, really interesting to see. Because the Australia flu season started in April, it started around the same time as the COVID lockdown and the pandemic, and everybody started 
staying home, practicing social distancing, washing their hands and wearing masks, that also actually helped to keep their flu numbers really low. So the actual figure that I read was absolutely staggering. Now, understanding that this isn't the number of people that got the flu, this is just the number of people that had, you know, severe enough flu to have a laboratory test. In 2019 in Australia, there were about 61,000 laboratory-confirmed cases of the flu. Do you know what it was in 2020? 107. Wow, that's amazing. Yep, so huge. It, it looks like what we're doing is, is helping us combat COVID, but it's also going to help us with the flu this year. That doesn't mean you shouldn't get a flu shot, but it does mean that we're on the right track. If you got your high-dose flu shot at your doctor's office, I'm not sure that that is going to be such a practical choice this year. Joanna? So every, every doctor's office is different, but you're right. We're seeing that a lot of doctors are trying to limit the amount of people there. Um, if they're able to do a phone consultation without, you know, decreasing the level of care, then that's something that, you know, in the time of a pandemic, um, most would, would act to do. We are at the pharmacy, of course, taking all of the necessary precautions. We're working closely with public health and we're following CDC recommendations to make it as safe as possible for patients to come into our stores to get um, the flu vaccine. But in terms of availability and things, as we talked about, Libby, you know, maybe the doctor's offices has re- have received. It's really, you know, a game of, of finding out where. What would you like to leave us with? What would you like to reiterate before we wrap this up? I think in a time of uncertainty, um, that we're living in right now. So there's, there's a lot going on with COVID and now we're going to layer on influenza season. We need to count on what we can really control. And the flu vaccine and taking those necessary precautions are what we can control as a population, as a community together. So I just want to say we will get through it together. Um, you will have an opportunity to get the flu vaccine. Please excuse us while we are trying to make sure that everybody has enough supply at the moment. It will open up in the coming weeks. Please let your pharmacist work through um, any hesitancies with you and answer any questions or concerns that you have. Rexall pharmacist Joanna Wild. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Jerry and Markham called with a complaint about shopping during the pandemic. I go into some of the place stores and they will not allow me to bring in my cloth bag that I carry my stuff in. I have to leave it outside and then go through the checkout and then either get their bag or take it with a cart out the door and then pack it into my bag outside. But they will not allow you to use bring a reusable bag inside. That makes it difficult for the shopper because what's the sense of spending $2 or $3 to buy a a green bag or a red bag or whatever it is, whichever store it is. And then it's a one-time use because you can't reuse it again. They don't know if you've washed it or not washed it, and they don't want it in their establishment. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from June in Mississauga who's feeling isolated as a result of what she sees as contradictory rules around COVID-19. I was going to go to my son's, but I don't drive those distances anymore. So my son's going to come by on Sunday for an outside visit and drop off some food. But my biggest complaint is about outlets, 
for seniors that live alone. I belong to the Mississauga Senior Center, and I used to go there five days a week for activities. Uh, exercise classes got cut in March. Then I managed to exercise for September. Then I got booted out of the class because they cut them back to 10. And my problem is when they're making decisions to government, it's a generalized thing. Like, I don't understand if we were in a senior center with all precautions and seniors are twice as cautious as anybody else. Why, all of a sudden now, I'm cut to sitting in the house again looking outside. Happy Thanksgiving to you, June, and all of our listeners from all of us here at Zoomer Radio. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.